Hi everyone, I'm Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired, and you're listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, senior associate editor Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Wired senior correspondent Peter Rubin, aka Proven Self. It was my dream to be introduced by my Twitter handle. <laughs> This is the show where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about. But it's not just about gadgets, it's about all this tech that's impacting our lives. And how we're all on a quest to take more control over the tech that's in our lives. There were, there were quotes and <laughs> italics applied to that word quest, which will come clear in either a few minutes or in the very next sentence out of Lauren's mouth. Anyway, we're going to get to Peter's review of the Oculus Quest a little bit later in the show, but first we should probably talk about all the software developer conferences. Yes, let's get to that. So let's many of do them. This, this week we had Microsoft Build in Seattle. We had Google I.O. and Mountain View. We're coming hot off of F8, which was last week. Lots to dig into. So yes. much. Uh, so the first one, I shouldn't say the first one that happened in chronological order, but the first one we're going to talk about is Microsoft Build. That happened on Monday. Now, these are, for the uninitiated, annual software conferences that are really put on to excite developers, to get them to build apps for specific platforms. But it's also kind of fun for consumers because we get a sneak peek of what we're going to experience on our phones and our laptops and, yes, on our faces in the coming months. Um, Ariel, on Monday morning I came in and you were already here at your desk watching the Microsoft Build keynote and I'm pretty sure you watched all 17 hours of it, bless your heart. I did. I got to the office much earlier than I normally do because Microsoft, for some reason, starts their keynote at 8.30 in the morning. That's, that's not even humane. It's really early. It's way too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only do they start it early, but it's actually a keynote for developers. <laughs> <laughs> As anyone who watched the live stream can attest. Exactly, yeah. So I, I always have a lot of fun during dev conference season because, Lauren, as you said, a lot of this is like these companies getting on stage, dancing around, showing you all the latest and greatest things that they're working on. Microsoft's not so much. Satya Nadella gets on stage and starts talking about code, <laughs> which is exactly what happened. <laughs> That's right. They do literally, I mean, they like, code live on stage and they talk about Linux kernels and as soon as they say Linux like people are like yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know it's like really it's really pretty wonderfully nerdy in a good way and I don't mean nerdy in a pejorative way uh, yeah so what did you think of it based on what you saw um, well I mean I thought it was as I said uh, not the most exciting or consumer focused of, of all the dev conferences but there were some cool uh, consumer insights to come out of it one that I think a lot of people have been talking about is the retooled edge browser Um, which seems like kind of a a small thing, but is actually a pretty big thing. Microsoft is basically rebuilding Edge um, on a completely different platform, um, and this is enabling all kinds of cool little tricks. Um, One of my favorites is that it has built-in Internet Explorer functionality. So, like, you know how there's some really old web pages that you can't open in modern browsers because they're like stuck in web 1.0 land. Because you need Silverlight or something. <laughs> right, earlier. right. So you like have to like dig up Internet Explorer to see these websites. Because um, you new... just have to see them. It's Sometimes clearly... well, if you're a developer, <laughs> you're sort of like you're trying to test across all That's these devices a... and you're like, they're okay, so the funny thing about Internet Explorer, it's always had more market share than Edge. So Edge was introduced with the launch of Windows 10 back in 20, oh God, when was that now? I don't know, years ago. And ever since then, the Edge browser, which was built like running on Edge HTML, um, never surpassed the use of Internet Explorer because people just weren't upgrading their machines and were still running Internet Explorer. So if you're a developer, you're thinking, I still need to test my stuff on IE because there are a lot of people, like millions of people in the world who are still using IE. Yes, Peter. Sorry. I always forget how the other 80% of the computing world lives, which is on Windows. Right, right. So now with Edge, you get two-in-one, which is which is fun and clever and cool. Yeah, I think one of the more interesting things about Edge is that it's running on Chromium. Mm-hmm. So when you think about Microsoft and the history of Microsoft and like going back to a very monopolistic Microsoft and the fact that they used to build their browsers and like their operating system and their browsers be very closed and to have proprietary elements that could not run well on or at all on other machines. And now for them to basically say, okay, Google has made the most popular browser in the world. Chromium is open source. We're going to build a browser based on Google's technology because that's how we're going to get compatibility for our developers and our users. Like, that's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. 
it's really nerd. It's like, I'm going to use the word again. It's nerdy wild, but, <laughs> but it's wild. It's that special flavor of wild. <laughs> Now, Lauren, you you got to spend some time with Satya Nadella ahead of the big event. Um, you were up in Seattle. You got to sit down and talk to him about sort of the moment that the company's in and and Microsoft's big push toward openness. Um, tell us a little bit about that and and what you saw come through in the keynote. So Satya Nadella has been CEO for five years now, and ever since he started in his tenure, he's been at Microsoft for much longer, but in his tenure as CEO, there's been a pretty notable shift within the company, which is that it's not just a company that's focused on Windows anymore and installing Windows on PCs and having people sort of enter their ecosystem that way, but they focus increasingly on Azure, which is their giant, giant cloud service, which competes directly with um, Amazon's Amazon Web Service. And um, the idea is that, you know, as businesses are getting larger and want to be smarter and are processing a lot more data, customer data, all kinds of things, um, a lot of these processes are going to happen in the cloud and then be sent back to what Sasha Nadella always refers to as the edge, which are the edge computing devices that we use. Intelligent edge. Oh, it's like, yeah, it's like when you watch any Microsoft keynote or interview, just get your shot glass ready. And every time <laughs> cloud or edge is used, by the end of it, you will be highly intoxicated in the cloud, you might even say. So, <laughs> so you know, so it, like a lot of what we talked about was would in some way tie back to this idea of the intelligent edge and the cloud. Like if you ask, Satya Nadella, as I did, about AI and how Microsoft thinks it's faring in AI, if you were to talk about it at the application level, like Google Docs versus Microsoft Office 365, I think a lot of people would say that Google Docs is much better and smarter at AI functionality at this point. And just, you know, we've all used like Smart Compose and we all use Docs and Sheets and all of these things. But Microsoft, I mean, that's important to Microsoft because there are a lot of people, millions of people using its Office 365 suite. But... Nadella will tie it back to the cloud. Like he'll say, well, what really matters is how we're using AI to improve business operations. And he cited Starbucks as an example. Like Starbucks literally has a smart coffee recommendation engine now that is powered by Microsoft's AI in the cloud. And that I think is increasingly the priority and the focus for Microsoft. So that was one of the things we talked about. Yeah, we saw a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of coffee ordering demos during <laughs> build. Uh, I was watching on um, <laughs> on YouTube, and there was this great chat going on, like as this Starbucks demo was taking place, where people are like, "Is this is this it? You can order coffee?" <laughs> like totally missing this bigger implication. Yeah. I think my favorite thing about Build is that every so often they would throw to like a satellite news desk on the periphery of the wherever they did this on Microsoft campus, and it would be like a visit from the Geek Squad, and there would be like a person in a polo shirt with a laptop in front of them explaining more about this or that. Yeah, Peter, you watched Build. Oh, no. No, okay. No, once I saw my second kind of visit to the Geek Squad, I was like, I don't understand this. Um, and to be not to be frank, but like I was, I was working on other things Monday, and I knew I was going to be paying attention to Google I/O uh, on Tuesday. And also, and this is a terrible thing, but kind of I am, I, I find what Microsoft is doing with Azure incredibly interesting because it's fueling so much of their kind of next-gen gaming initiatives, and it's part of the reason that they have moved X. Xbox kind of more towards the core of what Microsoft does. Um, but I've never, to be totally frank, I've never understood what Edge meant. And so I'm just not the audience. Let's um, <laughs> let's do a whole Gadget Lab podcast about that. Does Edge yeah. device just mean like our devices? That's the Edge? Or yeah, yeah, it's pretty much like the, inter- yeah, like so the device is just centralized user. computing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, well, thank you. Now something- I get it. So, so another thing they talked about is this new idea called Fluid. What the heck is that? Yeah, yeah. Lauren, what the heck is that? <laughs> no, it sounds like bodily fluid. Is fluids. that just like the edge? <laughs> that is, yes. Microsoft is really good. I don't know if I'd use the word good, but they often give new names to existing things. Like one day you're like, they're calling it search, and the next day they're calling it graph, and then they're like, search graph. And you're like, oh, yes, of course. But wait, what is new? Oh, wait, this is the existing graph, but you're just building search on top of the graph. And also there was like, there's Office 365, but there's also Microsoft 365, which encompasses more. So there's a lot to keep track of. How couldn't we keep it straight? I mean, it's it's all so logical. It's like you need an Excel document just to keep track. Or a Google Sheet. 
Because the AI is better. Ooh, Ooh it's like you need Sick some brain. AI to keep track of it for you. I need a coffee to keep track of this. <laughs> if only someone would recommend one to me. <laughs> so Fluid is this framework that Microsoft's been working on since 2016 that uh, it takes this idea, okay, how am I going to like say this in the most interesting way possible? So right now when we all work, we're working in browsers and apps and tabs. And if you're doing things between those applications or tabs, you pretty much have to switch between them. And then if you, let's say I shared a podcasting rundown with you guys earlier today, not that we ever use scripts, but like if I did, I, I would send it to you and then you would open it on your end and we'd both be working in it simultaneously, but you would have to see the whole thing and I would be looking at the whole thing. Fluid is this idea, there's this web framework that's not it's not like described as open source, but it's supposed to be open, where you componentize parts of different documents and spreadsheets and things like that. And I could like grab a paragraph from our shared document and just send that to you via, I would say Slack, Microsoft would say Teams, which is their competitor to Slack. And then you would just be able to edit that little component in real time. Same with like a table or a pivot table, or you could even like do an inking, you know, like a drawing, mm -hmm. which Microsoft is big on because they have a pen. You know, like, <laughs> they're, it's like the idea that you would break all of these little productivity applications down into Lego-like bits and share those instead of entire docs. So it's modular shareability? Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. You know what's yeah. not? Fluid. <laughs> Fluid. Fluid. Yeah. Call it brick. Call, yeah. call it something that feels like it has discrete <laughs> edges. Maybe edge. Maybe. Oh, maybe but then edge. maybe, maybe, yeah. You know, you should probably join Microsoft. You're I good totally at naming should. things. Please don't leave us. Yeah. Um, anyway, they talked about that, and and that's one of those things that like initially will probably only work with Microsoft apps. Eventually, might work with third party apps. But think about like if you're Microsoft and you owned productivity on the PC for a really long time, and now when people are on PCs, they're like, I'm using, I use Salesforce for you know CRM stuff. I use um, I use Slack. I use Trello. I use all these apps. And you're thinking, how do I keep people in our apps as easy as po as easily as possible, or like using them as easily as possible? You have to create ways. It's like a way to grab people's attention in a mm -hmm. weird way. Yeah, you have to market. You have to de devise the thing you do that other people don't do, and then you have to let them talk about it. So you give it a name. Yeah. Fluid. Yeah, Fluid. you take them out of their work silos. All right. Yeah. Should we move on to Google I/O? Yeah. I think that's a little bit more interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so Google hosts their developer conference right after Microsoft's. Um, in fact, they overlap a little bit, um, and we saw so much consumer-focused stuff out of out of I/O as we always do. Um, where to even begin? Oh, well, we can begin with phones. We could. I was going to say the the word of the spring. It wasn't so much at Microsoft, but we saw we heard it a lot at F eight. And that is every everything that Sundar Pichai said was privacy, privacy, privacy. I believe you it's mean, pronounced privacy. Privacy. I am sorry privacy. we did not discuss this mm -hmm. in our non-rundown before we came in here, but yes, privacy. Privacy. In honor um, of Archie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one, one of the interesting things um, in this year's dev conferences and, and surely in years to come is that you're seeing these executives get up on the stage and before they give you all the flashy news and, and products and, you know, new phones, new things you can do with the assistant, new ways that like Google can use your data to make life more convenient. Um, Sundar Pichai and, and Mark Zuckerberg and just to some degree Nadella as well, like have to get up there and say, we hear you. Privacy is important. Security is important. Having ownership of your data is important. And pay lip service to that a little bit before they get on to all the ways there misusing your data. Yeah, I was going to say, ownership <laughs> of data is not exactly what mm -hmm. they promised us. They just promised us the ability to maybe delete things from our from our edge devices <laughs> to cross-pollinate. But also from the cloud. But also from the also cloud. Also, we hope. It'll yeah, still be, tra traces will be available in the fluid, <laughs> but the cloud and the edge will be scrubbed clean. Fluid. Fluid's always contaminated. Fluid's fluid. always so hard to get the taint oh, out of the fluid. Yeah, just, it's so componentized and Legoized. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making up words at this point. Google was so intent on assuring everybody that it's concerned about your privacy that the morning of Google I.O. on Tuesday, 
The New York Times also published an op-ed written by Sundar Pichai saying that privacy is, should not be a luxury good. Hi, Apple. I mean, it's basically <laughs> the subtext, right? That's like a giant subtweet to Apple. And uh, talking about the different ways that Google believes you should have choices and control around your privacy. Now, all this is happening not just against the backdrop of a bit of a public backlash, but it's about a year after GDPR went through, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of these companies have had to make changes because they've been forced to, in a way, to think more carefully about uh, data sharing and data storage and data security. And you know, in some cases now, prominent figures are actually calling for the regulation of tech companies. And so I think a lot of this is an attempt by the big executives to sort of head that up and say like, we're on it, everybody. We don't, yeah, I think I should be regulated too. It's like when you go to your parents and you're like, no, mom, I think I need a timeout. I don't want to be grounded for Saturday night because that party is going to be real fun. But you're right. I was wrong. I should take a little timeout in the corner, yep. you know. Before your co-founders go write giant pieces for the Times <laughs> about how they need to break up the company they helped oh, found. Right, right. As Chris Cox too. just yes. did. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, there is Huse. this kind of scrim. Sorry, yes. yes. Sorry, wrong Chris who left the company. <laughs> uh, Chris Hughes who left in 07. Chris Cox left last year, correct? That's correct. Uh, thank you. Um, but, yeah, everyone's trying to get out in front of whatever is uh, whatever trouble lurks around the corner. What's interesting in Google's case, though, is that the main thing Google is good at is using your data <laughs> to deliver things that are personalized to you. So, Which brings us back to the original phone stuff and all the things they showed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like they, they showed off a lot of really cool things you can do with the Google Assistant, for example, um, which is increasingly smart and sophisticated and useful. But yes. one of their big pitches is that you can now teach the Assistant things about you, like where what you mean when you say, give me directions to mom's house, or what's the weather like where my son lives. And these things are all really cool and great, but they also are in sort of tension with this idea that you should give Google less data. Well, yeah. they depend on Google having access to everything, like being the ecosystem that you are within and thus mm -hmm. able to scrape from your photos and your mail and your calendar and all. The dream of convenient, uh, of AI engendered convenience rests entirely on a lack of privacy, mm -hmm. at least at a person to device level. So the security around that, like, these, this is the thing that sci-fi has given us for decades, and it's always been a good thing, and now that we're being confronted with it, it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to yeah. keep having this issue. One of the things that Pichai and Stephanie Cuthbertson, uh, who presented on stage, talked about a lot, specifically with Android Q, which is going to be the newest operating system. And I don't think Q has not been named yet, right? That's, no. that's no. the name. No, we were trying to speculate what it might Quick. be. I think Quince. Ariel said quinoa. Ooh, yeah. quinoa would be so quiche healthy, be though. Kit Kat. I say Kit Kat. Kit Kat. What was the K android? Was it Kit Kat? Uh, yeah, it was Kit Kat. Mm -hmm. So Kit Kat. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> One of the things that we saw a lot with Android Q is uh, are these privacy settings. You know, mm -hmm. they're saying, oh, look, we've moved this element of managing your pride, uh, your your privacy, excuse me. Uh, you know, we've moved it up the hierarchy in, in the application. So now when you like tap on your account page or a hamburger, it's like the first thing you see. Or, um, hey, look, we've created these three distinct buckets. One's about location, one's about ad settings, one's about another thing. Uh, also, you can choose to auto-delete your location data after a certain period of time. Um, there are all these little things that Google was introducing to assure people, not just part of the Android Q, but independent of the operating system as well, that like we're on it. But a lot of them, in my opinion, still put a lot of the onus on us to sit down with our phones or our laptops and our browsers and say like, all right, I'm gonna like dig through this stuff. Same thing with the new Nest device. And by the way, I love the Google Home Hub. I have one of those at home, but this, there's this new Nest device. It has a camera now. So Rick Osterloh from Google had to talk a lot about how like you can toggle the camera off and there's an indicator light and all this stuff. And then and then it's like, we have, we're also publishing a privacy doctrine. And I'm like, okay, nobody is going to read that. <laughs> now, one of the more interesting things that Google talked about though, and this is something that Lily Hay Newman from our team has written about previously, is this idea of um, federated learning, which is kind of a subset of machine 
machine learning where you don't have to send as much information to the cloud. You create these disparate sort of little data sets on device, and then that still enables some of the machine learning to happen, but it's you know in a slightly more private way. Like I think stuff like that's really interesting. It's very cool. And and a lot of the the most intriguing stuff to me from I/O was how they managed to shrink these incredibly complex corpuses and systems in. Like mm-hmm. the fact that for this next generation of Google Assistant, something that would be, I believe they said 500 gigabytes is down to half a gig. Mm-hmm. You're talking about mm-hmm. like an order of magnitude less for install on phone. That's remarkable. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of stuff developers get excited about too. Yeah. Although the thing that got the biggest round of applause, well, there were two things. I'm curious to hear related. if it's the same thing. One was, so on a Google Assistant device now, you if, if the alarm goes off in the morning, which is what I use mine for, you no longer have to say, hey Google, stop, or whatever it is. I, I usually say stop. You can just go, stop. <laughs> That's it, you just shout at it, and, and it stops. And then the other thing is if you're using the Nest, Home, Nest Hub Max, which is the new big video hub with the, a camera, and you are, it's playing music, and you're in the kitchen, and the doorbell rings, and you don't want to yell over it to tell it to shut up, you can just hold up your hand, and it'll pause or mute. And it felt like those were the two things that got people more excited than anything, which were the ability to very easily shut your devices up. Yes. yes. That's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. It's the little things, I guess. Uh, we've got lots of stories on that on the website. Tom Simonite also wrote a great piece about all the things you can do with uh, Google Assistant now and how smart it's gotten. We're going to take a super quick break, and then we're going to be right back with Quest. So Microsoft and Google are, of course, not the only companies hosting big developer conferences. Apple has one coming up next month. And as we mentioned, Facebook hosted its annual shindig, F8, last week. Uh, coinciding with that was the launch of the Oculus Quest, and Peter here has been using it, loving it, living it. Cradling the, it in my arms. Yeah. <laughs> for the past couple of weeks, it's it's actually quite remarkable. Sometimes you walk into the office and Peter it seems like he's been here all night, just his head inside of this thing, lost in his own separate world. Drenched in sweat. It's, it's frightening, <laughs> but uh, it's true. Uh, Peter, is this a thing that is going to have us all wearing headsets soon? I mean, there has certainly been a lot of expectation heaped on it that says exactly that. And I should should point out that it is it's it's it opened for pre-orders. It became available for pre-order at F8, but it will actually be in stores and being delivered to people starting May 21st. So in about a week and a half. Um, there's a lot writing on this for VR evangelists and VR proponents mm-hmm. because it delivers what has long been held as a kind of a physical ideal of VR, meaning that it is a standalone device, you are not tethered to anything, and you have full six degree of freedom movement, both your head and body and hands. Um, And what that does is it kind of frees up the world and it lets you use VR in the world in a way that we haven't been able to. So there's a lot riding on it in that sort of capacity and what oculus is doing at the same time they're delivering this sort of mid-cycle upgrade to the original rift called the rift s which is for pc vr users people who don't mind being tethered having they want the more compute power that comes from uh, being connected to a pc but what it's doing in in both ways is it's very very squarely and very consciously targeting the game playing segment of the population, which at this point is most of the population. It's not gamers, but it's people who want to use VR for fun. Um, Though at F8, uh, they also announced that Oculus was gonna be going hard after the enterprise market. So they're doing a bunch of kind of programs and bundles so people can use Quest in enterprise settings. So that's another kind of interesting wrinkle. Um, So for consumers, it's a game device. And at $399, it is a game device. It is essentially priced exactly like a game console at this point. And so what is gonna be available for it at launch is really interesting. There's about 50 titles. Um, It's a mix of things that were available for the Rift and have kind of been ported over to to, to kind of work with little lower level compute power because you're dealing with a system on a chip. So you've got Snapdragon 835, yes, 835, not 845. Um, 
so a little like certain things and like the shaders or whatever are downgraded a little bit or they've, they've changed a little element of the game. But those big Rift games like Robo Recall and something called Super Hot VR. But in my <laughs> Super mind, Hot VR. Yeah, super wow. Hot. Are there fluids involved? I think you played Super Hot at, um, at uh, Oculus Connect. It's that one uh, where like time stops and you're oh, yeah. shooting things. And it, yeah, and you can slow them down <clears throat> as yes. they come towards you. Stuff like that gives me such anxiety. Oh, yeah. I mean, first person shooter, you know, just in VR, it gives me anxiety. And, and I don't think yeah. it's the strongest use case <clears throat> for the technology. Like, what mm-hmm. excites me the most about Quest is there's a, there's a game called Beat Saber, which came out last year for every other VR platform. And it's essentially Guitar Hero with lightsabers in each hand. Yes. So there's a track of these cubes flying at you and music is playing and you're like <laughs> slashing and ducking and moving. And it's incredibly kinetic. It's, con- it's incredibly active. The audio is fantastic. And you're just, you can do it in any room because the headset itself tracks your hand controllers. And it's very easy to draw out a safe space to play in. So the fact that it works as well as it does on a high powered PC or console system like the PSVR is incredible. And those are the games that are going to make people want to use VR. Yeah, I I love that example. That sounds incredibly fun. And now I feel like I must get into VR. Um, but I wanted to, to touch on something you just mentioned about being able to play this in any room. Um, something you mentioned in your review is that this is the first VR headset to offer room scale. It's the first standalone. It's the first the untethered first device untethered. to offer room scale. Tell so, us what that means, why so, that's important. So when, when VR began, uh, when VR headsets first became six degree of freedom things, meaning you couldn't, you, you could do more than just rotate. You could more than just turn around. You could lean and you could crouch and you could move on what's called the translational plane, not just the, or the translational axes, not just the rotational ones, Um, meaning that you could move in space. And when the Oculus Quest and the HTC Vive both came out within like two weeks of one another. And when Oculus Rift first came out, it was for like standing experiences. They didn't want you moving around too, too much. And the Vive said, we're gonna give you these two kind of base stations and you can have room scale VR, meaning if where, like however much space is covered in your room by these two lighthouses that'll track your headset, you can move in that space. So it could be as much as like 10 by 10. Um, But what that meant is if you wanted to move around in a 10 by 10 space, you had to make sure that you had enough cable to like, that you wouldn't trip over it or choke yourself or like come to the end like a cartoon (laughs) dog getting to the end of its leash. Um, Or you had to like rig it up to a hook in the ceiling or all these things that early VR enthusiasts did to make their setups great. Now you have room scale without wires. And so what's great about it is there's a pass-through camera on the Quest. So when you put it on, those turn on and you see the room in kind of wavy, kind of blurry black and white, but you see the room you're standing in through the headset. Then you take a controller and you walk around with the trigger held, one of the triggers held down and you just trace the outline of the room so that you're not like bumping into file cabinets or couches or whatever. And then it translates that into your play space. So in VR, when, if you're getting towards the edge of it, this kind of glowing blue curtain appears. And then if your hand or head goes at it, it turns red. Now, if you put your head all the way through that curtain, which is called Guardian, the pass-through camera turns on automatically. And then you see actually where you are in the room, which is a really cool kind of safety device. But it's incredibly easy to set these play spaces up and the Quest will remember five of them. So. When I now walk into my living room or my dining room or our boss's office at work, the question is like, I've been here before. Here's the Guardian. Here's what your play space is. That's so cool. And I don't have to remap it. What's the battery life like? It's about, they're saying two to three hours. And what I found is you get about three hours at gameplay. They say two hours for games, three hours for just like watching media. I think in my experience and a lot of other people's experience who have had this uh, early, it's probably about an hour more than that. So I've gotten... You know, two hours of solid play will get me down to about 30% battery life. Have you done any any uh, entertainment apps in it? So the the ones that have been available pre-launch, there have not been many. There's mm-hmm. something, um, Netflix is not available at launch. Hulu, I don't think is available at launch, though it is going to be added to the Oculus TV app, which is like a way to bundle all your video streaming apps into like a single environment where you can kind of watch it in your Oculus home which is a whole other aspect mm-hmm. to this thing. Um, so Red Bull TV is available on it. 
Um, and then there's something, I can't remember the name of it, that basically throws random YouTube videos at you. Like, you don't have to think about what to look for. It's just like, here's a fun video, here's oh, another one. No. And hopefully, no, it no, won't no. take you straight to like 9-11 truthers within the first 10 right. minutes. There's only, there are only six steps <laughs> exactly. before any of us get there. So. Yes. Yeah. I feel like we need to fix YouTube's yeah. recommendation engine before it just starts appearing in front of our eyes Seriously. In, in VR. So, I mean, with a lot of the uh, entertainment applications, at least that I've experienced before in a much more limited way, you're entering a virtual environment, but you're just you're still looking at a flat 2D screen. Is that right. how they are? So they, that it is how like they a, are. Like, I remember at one, I was like in this virtual Aspen Ski Lodge, and it was beautiful, it's and I had this gigantic living room that I don't actually have, and snow is falling outside, and then it's like, I think I was watching like Bill Murray's Christmas or something. I, th- I mean, literally, this was like very early days that was Samsung what, Galaxy Netflix, Gear, maybe. Yeah, and that's what the and Netflix app looked yes, like. Yes, but VR. it's just like a flat TV. Yes. I'm like, I have a virtual flat TV instead of a physical flat that's TV. That's right, mm. but the, the, the kind of value add of that is you could invite a friend and then your avatar, their avatar, and you could be in the same place watching this show together and talking. And so, like, high school couples go their separate ways for college. They can still kind of hang out and watch Netflix. Oh, wow. So that's, like, the, that's the cool proposition of watching flat video in VR. And I only bring that up because that, like, I once spoke to a high school, and the thing that got the most excited about VR was that you could do that because all of a sudden they were all seniors and they were about to go off to college and they could just, like, hang out with their friends in VR and do the thing that That's they would amazing. normally do. In so, that, so, like, in their yearbooks, if anyone still signed those, which they don't probably, they'd be like, see you next VR. Yeah, exactly. That's that was so cheesy. Just a quick aside, <laughs> another thing that Facebook announced at F8 was the ability to f- video chat over various Facebook platforms and watch TV while also video chatting. And I was thinking while watching Mark Zuckerberg announce this, like, who would do that? And you've answered my question. Well, I think the difference there is the Facebook thing is weird to me because you're going to, like, you have such limited real estate on your phone to do that. Right. In VR, you don't. You're in a 360-degree environment. So the TV... Like you're sharing a TV, which is the same size to you as it would be in real life, but then the rest of your space can be filled up with your friends, which is just like a really interesting and tiny wrinkle Hmm. of social VR, Hmm. which is the other kind of cool thing that I'm excited about is bringing these platforms like VR Chat and Rec Room to a a, a wider audience because this is, I think, and a lot of people have echoed this in the early reviews of the Quest, is this is really VR for the masses in a way we haven't seen. We've seen like mass... Um, kind of mass-produced devices that you put your phone in for VR, like the Gear VR, Mm -hmm. but it didn't deliver the whole thing. It was kind of you could only look around. You couldn't move. And having the ability to do all that is pretty pretty valuable. Very cool. So is this the thing that's going to be the tipping point for VR? It could be a tipping point for VR. I think people are trying to abandon the idea that there's going to be a single watershed moment. I think... uh, it's it's what's so interesting about AR and VR both is it's I've and I think a lot of people have never seen a technology be considered so inevitable and receive kind of so much flack in its early consumer days. But that does like it's not going anywhere. It's just kind of getting through these early generations. So I think that the quest is going to be seen as an important inflection point, though I don't think that this is now the tip into mainstream cultural ubiquity. Hmm. It still needs to get smaller, Mm -hmm. still needs to be easier, probably still needs to get combined with an AR wearable so you can go transparent and kind of have it all in one. Um, I still think that for some people there's something alienating to see someone with an occlusive headset on. Um, But it, this is certainly a this this has more potential to be the Nintendo Wii of VR than anything else has had. Mm. Wow, that's well really interesting. Do you think it needs to come down in price more? I think three ninety nine is a good launch price. I'm sure they're selling it at a loss. Uh, I think hmm. two ninety nine in a year or two would make a lot of sense, but I I don't think they see any need to do that. I think you know I have no idea what the numbers are going to be, and the biggest success in VR headsets. Up to now is the PlayStation VR, which has sold about between four and four and a half million. It's not a big number, but it's way more than anyone else. Other than the, like the the phone ones, I right. think your VR sold a ton, but that's not like a device. This is a all in one thing, and I think um, I think we're going to see numbers for it, though I don't know what they are. Yeah, and remind us again one more time when this comes it's out. out. May twenty first, same day as the Rift S, which is if you are looking for a little bit more. And it's also like right around the time, a bunch of headsets are coming out. 
Hewitt Packer's um, Reverb, mm-hmm. uh, the Valve Index, I think, is coming out in June, which is this incredibly high-end PC headset uh, that just got announced last month or a couple weeks ago. Um, so it's a big time for this kind of first-and-a-half generation of VR headsets. Totally. Very cool. VR headsets, just in time for Gemini season. Just in time for Gemini season. <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes you want to be in this world and sometimes you want to be in a virtual world. <laughs> and gaze at the stars. Yeah. And know what your uh, what is in what house. Exactly. Is that right? Did yep. I get that right? That's exactly right, yes. Peter. Spoken like a true Pisces. That's right. <laughs> anyway, let's get on to recommendations, shall we? It's somebody's birthday this weekend. Somebody's that's birthday why, this weekend. That's why star signs keep coming up. Is it your birthday this <laughs> yes, weekend? Yes, it's Ariel. Ariel. It's birthday. Oh, it's my birthday yay. on Saturday. <laughs> well, let's start with you then. Yes. Oh, I have a great What's recommendation. What's brought you early birthday joy? Yes. Well, it's not every week that you find something so delightful, so pure, so surprising. Um, as my recommendation is this week, I actually have to give credit to our, our dear friend Sunar Pachai, uh, who recommended this thing to me actually in in the course of io there were a couple directly moments. to you like ariel you really need to check this out <laughs> I, that's I why i received the message at least uh yeah there were a couple of times during io where where pachai was talking about um uh, i don't even remember how how the assistant learns how to predict i don't even re- recall but a couple of times he he mentioned um bts and i was like what is that and I slacked some editors after the, the conference saying like, hey guys, like there's one thing I'm still really confused about. It's like, what is BTS? And I have now discovered that BTS is a really fun K-pop band. Hugely, hugely famous. <laughs> Don't forget that part. Yes, which I had never heard of before and has been bringing me so much joy for the past couple of days. It's a seven member group, which is like way too many members. Three of them are rappers, which is confusing for a K-pop group. Um, But they are really, really fun. They have great dance moves. An excellent introductory performance would be their their SNL debut, which was from... About... a month ago. A month ago. It's most. very recent. Um, it's really fun. And then once you watch that on, like, say, YouTube, you'll start getting all sorts of recommended videos for, like, learning everything about every member of BTS. Um, I went down a small rabbit hole after IO and have learned so much. Like, for example, the leader of the group, who goes by RM, which stands for Rap Monster, oh, is, yes. is someone who came from the rap and hip-hop community and then was, like, plucked by... Um, like a K-pop executive who wanted, yeah, who like wanted RM to be part of this group and the rap community like totally shunned him. And so now he like grapples with this inner turmoil about whether he wants to be part of the pop world or the rap world. Uh, He's really cool though. And there are like six other members you can learn all about. I am so happy that you have fallen in love with BTS. BTS is great. Do you guys listen to BTS? I didn't know what BTS was either. I thought it was a phrase. Like, because I think, what was the other one they used? FOMO? was YOLO. FOMO, or YOLO was the other example. Yeah. So I just assumed it was something like behind the scenes. It is. Or, I mean, it is behind the it scenes. It is, right? Like in a script, it would be yeah. behind the scenes. And and I just, yeah, I was like, all right, apparently that's trending. Who knows? We should make a new series called BTS with BTS mm. where you go behind the scenes it. for their performances and you learn about the group dynamics and the things that are on their minds. Yeah. What if you did it in their home country and it was back to Seoul Ooh. and it was BTS, BTS, BTS. Ooh, that's so good. That's incredible. BTS cubed. I really like that. Guys, I'm going to be leaving Wired to begin this new endeavor. Are you going to be in it or are you going to be their producer? I could picture you in a K-pop band. Oh my god, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Same. Yeah. Yeah. That's the nicest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. What archetype would you want to be? <laughs> That's right. Oh, I don't know. Um, if anyone listening has has good resources on learning everything about K-pop, I'm very interested. So please tweet me. After their SNL performance, it was a really like because so BTS has been monstrous among the world's teens for some time now, but SNL introduced them to a, like a totally different audience. Yeah. And so I saw a number of people be like, I saw Saturday Night Live and I found them totally charming and now I'm completely obsessed with BTS. Like Laura Hudson, friend of Wired, fell completely down the BTS hole. 
the BTS. Yeah. Let's call it the BTS rabbit hole. BTS. <laughs> yeah, the BTS hole hole. sounds more like. Yeah, I think yeah. I think Microsoft came up with that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just found out I was like very late to Baby Shark. I'm very late to memes these days, so it's not shocking that I was behind the scene. I was behind the curve. I was BTC on <laughs> BTS. But I'm really Bitcoin? glad that Ariel has now. Yeah, Bitcoin. So I'm very glad that you have now brought this to the forefront. Or really, we should. Whatever, Sundar. Thank you, Ariel. Um, oh, all credit to, to Io for <laughs> And now you know what YOLO means, too. Which and now was another I know what big... YOLO means. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, that's that town in Northern California, right? Exactly. Yep, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lauren, what's yours this week? Mine this week is an article written by our colleague, Emily Dreyfus. It's actually a Q&A, and it's a lengthy Q&A. It's an exhaustive one, but it's very good. She interviewed Melinda Gates about Melinda Gates' new book. It's called, it's actually a memoir. It's called The Moment of Lift and How Empowering Women Changes the World. And it, chronicle, it chronicles uh, Melinda Gates' evolution as um, a career woman, as a partner, as a person, and as an activist. And, um, and the interview, I haven't read the book yet, but the interview that Emily did is really, really good. They talk about everything from uh, the issues of diversity in the technology industry, and um, and Melinda Gates says very specifically that she doesn't think that it's a pipeline problem and that people should stop using the pipeline phrasing and instead look at it as pathways or on-ramps to helping women get into tech. She talks about just basically going around and trying to help women of all backgrounds, of all nations, to improve their lives because she believes that by empowering women and lifting women up, you can actually help cure a lot of the problems that, that exist in our society. And it's a very thoughtful interview. Um, and it really felt, it was one of those Q&As that feels like they're having a conversation too. It doesn't feel like Emily went in with like written down questions and it's like, I'm now going to hit this bullet point. Mm. It flows really nicely. And now I'm looking forward to reading the book. So I recommend going to wired.com and reading Emily's interview with Melinda Gates. Oh, Amazing. I haven't read that yet. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Amazing. What I love so much about that recommendation is it makes mine feel all the more frivolous. Now I feel (laughs) incredibly selfish about mine. Um, So I guess I can tie this in in some small way to a piece uh, I wrote last week, which was about what I have started to call the Instagram shame silo, which is like when you get into a thing, maybe you post about it or maybe you've been geotagged somewhere that has something to do with it and then you start getting the ads and they're ads that you love getting and like some of them are accounts you end up following and you just like deepen this hole and you find yourself kind of in this realm of obsession around a thing that you don't want to like appear obsessive about to anyone you know which is the shame part of it so that is background uh to say that kind of through that, I became aware of the kind of exploding industry around sports recovery. This idea that like, you know, we've always, there's been a lot of progress in like what we wear to do the exercise we do and what we eat and how we fuel ourselves. And now the big thing as it has been for a couple of years is how do you, how do you make, speed up your body's recovery so that you feel better the next day, especially as you get older and if you stay active as you age? Um, how do you stop from being just a quivering mess of soreness for a week after doing something? Oh, you listen to K-pop. You listen to K-pop, <laughs> obviously. So I have been, uh, I'm working on a few different things uh, about this world. And as part of it, I've started using a bunch of these products. And so at this point, there's this triad of things that I am using that I just I have to talk about before uh, I exercise. It, depending on what the exercise is, I put on these things called uh, they're a pair of uh, neuropriming headphones hmm. made by Halo. It's the second generation. It's called the Halo Sport Two, and it basically uses direct transcranial stimulation. It's like mild electro stim um, to kind of prime you to learn from the movements that you make. So there are, they have all these studies, and I'm not gonna get into the science of it because uh, I haven't vetted it thoroughly, but like you can get better at learning a piano piece or learning a language, or you can get better at a specific lift or in even sprints or endurance running. They have all these applications, and so I do that before, but that's not the part that feels good. The part that feels good is afterwards when I get out the Theragun, which is this giant power drill looking thing that basically jackhammers itself into your flesh at 40 times a second. It is, it is bliss. (laughs) 
It is bliss. It and so it has all these competitors and all these knockoffs, and some people just sell attachments that you can put in a, a cordless jigsaw. This thing um, was developed by a chiropractor. He kind of trialed and narrowed it for his own rehab after a motorcycle accident. All these athletes use it. Kyrie Irving used it on the sidelines of the NBA Finals a couple years ago. LeBron. It feels incredible. But then there's this other thing that also has trickled down from the world of elite athletes to kind of sport early adopters and tech heads. It's these giant compression pants that aren't pants because they're two different sleeves and you put them on your legs and then you connect them. You connect them to an air com- compressor basically and they swell up like the Michelin man's mm-hmm, legs. Mm-hmm. And I saw they surfers sp- using these at the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch. Yes, and they it's called peristaltic pulse dynamic mm-hmm. compression because it's it's structured into like five zones up your leg so it'll like compress two of them and keep the others loose and then it'll like pulse its way up your leg like you're being swallowed by the venus flytrap in little shop of horrors uh and it's supposed to recirculate your blood and kind of lymphatic fluid to, to help with inflammation and soreness and the half hour that i spend in these things every night is just utter bliss <laughs> I when they're expensive though, right? They are the new ones uh, are twelve hundred dollars. Yeah, the Theragun is four hundred dollars. These are not cheap things, uh, and they are certainly not like they're things that you would expect to find also in a physical therapist's office or a massage therapist's office. But they're like the Theragun has these two very consumer-driven new products. The one I've been using is one of those. The Normatec used to be much more money. The second generation pairs with your phone so you can send your, quote, recovery data to Strava mm-hmm. or Training Peaks. What? Every time I do that, I make it private because of how embarrassing it is. I don't want Lauren <laughs> seeing it on my Strava where it says Normatec recovery session. But uh, they are incredibly expensive and they really do feel good. And, and so... Um, there's a woman who wrote a book about this industry, Christy Ashwanden, who's a science writer. She wrote this book earlier this year called Good to Go, and it's great. And she takes down a lot of the snake oil stuff in this world, but she's like, look, if you're spending a half hour not doing anything and just like thinking about how you feel, she's like, it doesn't matter if the science they say it's using isn't doing anything because like you're taking the time for yourself and that's gonna boost your healing. Hmm. Oh, that's same, interesting. Yeah, same with the, like, the percussive gun. She was like, whether or not that mechanism is any better than a massage or sleep, which is in her mind the best thing you can do, the fact that you're thinking about it and and treating yourself a little bit is it makes you excited to do it. You might exercise more, um, and it just feels so good. I remember the first time that I saw that I was I was at the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch doing a story, and uh, one of the surfers in between runs had just laid down. She's like one of the top surfers in. In the country, probably in the world, she like laid down on the ground and was just taking a nap with these giant, you know, like balloon hand things on her legs. And I was like, "What is going on?" And it makes this whirring sound. Mm-hmm. This kind of as the air is filtering through. And I was like, "What is this?" And then I googled it. And a lot of the surfers there would say their legs were more tired than usual when they were at the surf ranch because normally when you're surfing, you're you're sitting out there for a long time. And then maybe once in a while you catch a wave. And even when you catch it, you're probably not riding it for one to two minutes. But these surfers are going up and down and up and down the wave pool time after time for like at least a minute at a time so their legs are getting super tired mm-hmm. and they're pro athletes so they have to recover so I just saw that and I was like this is you know of course and then I started googling and then I was like oh this is this, this is that fancy stuff that yeah. real athletes like, get so you but you some, get to try it which is amazing it's super fun uh, I write about this yes yes uh, uh, I will say that one of my cats hopped on last night while they were fully inflated and then they started moving and she was like, I don't know what's happening and then ran off me. <laughs> You're lucky she didn't just like poke some holes That's in it. what I was, she I is the, <laughs> she does do that to my legs to keep purchase so I'm glad that she didn't. It like, sounds like it could be like a bouncy house for cats. It feels like a bouncy house. It really, like you can seriously bounce your, it's so rigid when it's all puffed up. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be so sad to send them back. Oh. Well, that was a great recommendation. And uh, this has been really fun, guys. I love coming to the Gadget Lab podcast. Yeah, Thank you guys for having me. Joining us, Peter, where can the people find you on Twitter? They can find me on Twitter at Proven Self, just like Lauren said at the top of the show. <laughs> That's right. And Ariel, where are you? I'm at Part Esoteric. I'm at Lauren Good with an E. Mike Laurie, who it's like, we almost forgot about him. We didn't mention him at the top of the show, but he has been on vacation this yes. week. Good for him. The man deserves it. He's back next week. He is normally at Snack Fight, and you can hit all of us up at 
the Gadget Lab. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, hot mics, hot mics, people, hot mics. hot mics. I can't believe. Wait, I, can I just read this aloud to Peter? This is going to be our Easter egg. Is this your ransomware? Mm-hmm. Uh, your name, which just shows that there was probably a blank field. The email starts robocall. your name. So your name. Okay. And this is a voice transcription. The local county sheriff are going to arrest you for four serious allegations before this matter goes to the courthouse and we freeze your bank account and suspend your social security number and get you arrested. For more information regarding this case, you can get that to us at 817-blah-blah-blah-blah. Repeat 817-blah-blah-blah. I have no reason to protect the identity of these scammers. I just don't feel like going through the number. And then make sure you give us a call back before you get arrested. Now, I have to say it's really polite of them it really to is. give me a heads up. It's a about to get arrested. But, but it also is kind of an open-ended it's not by this time when you will get arrested. It's just make sure to call us before you get arrested. <laughs> Give us a ring. Also, I really just convenience. Like, I, also, I can only think of three things I've done bad recently. So, what is the fourth? That's just something from your. <laughs> you know, when it comes to the sh- the county sheriff's department, like, they don't forget. Um, also, the transcription of scam calls is so much more entertaining than the calls themselves. That's how I experience them too. I just read, and I'm like, you are terrible at transliterating. Chinese, and the word Goldman Sachs is the only thing that made it into this transcription that is accurate. Every time. Hi everyone, Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.